Have any of you ever been a witness in a courtroom trial? I have never been a witness in a courtroom, but when I was a kid, I witnessed a fight between two kids in our neighborhood. And the fight must have gotten pretty serious uh, because the police were called in. And what I remember is I remember being on the street and the police officer asking a few of us questions about this, uh, those of us that had seen what had happened. We had witnessed what had happened, and the officer was asking us questions. And I remember him uh, taking my, my statement, what I, what I saw, and writing it down in his, his notepad. And he asked me my name, and he wrote that down as well. And so I was a witness of this fight. And I remember after this uh, that there would be times when sometimes, you know, some of the, the kids that had gotten into trouble would talk about, yeah, I have a record, I have a police record. And I would say, yeah, I have a police record too. Uh, because a police officer recorded my name. And I thought, well, that's, that's a police record. So I, I have a police record too. So it was my, my street cred I thought I had. Uh, because I thought that's what a police record uh, was. You know, in today's passage, we're getting near to the end of the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke 24, and we're going to be looking at two paragraphs, starting with verse 36 and going through 49. And these two paragraphs, I think the thing that ties these two together is each of these paragraphs are about being a witness. Being a witness but in two different ways. In the first paragraph, they are called to, to witness Christ. And in the second paragraph, they are called to be a witness for Christ. So really the main point of this uh, sermon is that these disciples, disciples of Jesus, are called to witness Jesus and to be a witness for Jesus. So let's look at the first paragraph uh, first, starting with verse 36, and we will summarize this, that Jesus' disciples are called to witness that Jesus was raised physically and not just spiritually. He was raised physically, bodily, and not just spiritually. So starting with verse 36, hope you have scripture and uh, you can follow along. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So this is after the, the resurrection. Jesus has been uh, crucified. On the third day, he, he rises again. And uh, now he is appearing here. Uh, last week, he had appeared to uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And here he's appearing to, uh, to the, the other apostles and, and disciples here. And they're in this uh, room, and all of a sudden, he just uh, appears before them. 
Now, in this paragraph we just read, I noticed the word peace was in here twice. That in verse 36, Jesus gives them a gift of peace. In verse 42, they give him a piece of fish. Now, that is just a coincidence in English because the, when Luke wrote this, he wrote this in Greek, and it was two different Greek words. Uh, for us in English, it's peace and peace, uh, two different words for peace. Uh, but I want to talk about each of those, uh, each of these pieces, and why, uh, what is something that's important about each of these. So in verse 36, Jesus says to them, peace to you. And just think of what they were experiencing and what they were going through. They had seen their, their dreams and hopes and everything just come crashing down as the one that they thought was the Messiah is, is taken away and is crucified and is killed. And here, all of a sudden, they've been hearing rumors that Jesus had, had risen, but they were confused and they didn't know uh, what to believe. And is this even possible? And then all of a sudden, Jesus uh, just appears in, in the room with them. And it, whether he walked through the wall or materialized or teleported in, it's, we don't know exactly what happened, but this was a startling thing to them. And we see the way that they responded. It says they were startled and they were frightened. And they, they thought they saw a spirit. I mean, basically, is this a ghost? What is going on? And I think it's important that Jesus' first words to them are peace to you. He wants them not to be afraid. He wants to give them this, offer them this, this gift of peace. And again, you think of the emotions that they had been going through. Not just their disappointment and confusion, but probably also feelings of guilt. That they had, when Jesus is being crucified, they pretty much abandoned him. Uh, they pretty much all of them fled and uh, were looking after their own interests. And how important was it Jesus comes and first thing off the bat offers them peace. And the word peace uh, in, in that culture also meant not, not just the absence of, um, of, of war and uh, trauma, but, but, but wholeness, wellness. Things are going to be okay. Jesus offered them peace. You know, Jesus offers us peace as well. And yeah, we're going through some difficult times right now, and there will be difficult times in the future. And how significant is it that Jesus offers us, offers you peace to you and I? But the peace that he offers, it's not just the type of peace that most of the world wants and most of the world expects, just ease from trouble. That uh, right now they want um, physical safety and from sickness or financial uh, ease from their trouble there, security with the future. And those things are incredibly important. And God is in control and God will help us with these things. But there is a deeper, more important peace that God offers to us. Because if you have uh, ease from your financial troubles, if you have ease from, from sickness, if you're escaping all of that, but if you do not have peace with God, you do not have the core of peace that really matters most, that you really need. Think about it like this. Imagine there are two people flying on two different airplanes, and uh, passenger A is in uh, this one airplane and flying along, 
and uh, he's nervous. He's nervous to be in this airplane and, and flying, and the flight attendants can see this, so they come and they're, they're trying to help him out. So uh, they said, here, we want to make you comfortable. Here's a pillow. And uh, here is, uh, some, here's some snacks. Here's some, some beverages. Uh, here's a blanket. They're doing everything they can to make this person comfortable. And, and he appreciates it. it. It's helpful. And they give him some headphones, but this passenger, as he looks out the window, he notices you know, thick black smoke coming from uh, several of the uh, three of the engines. And the flight attendant says, well, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the, uh, the smoke. You know, take your mind off it. We have a built-in movie screen on the seat in front of you. Plug in your headphones, you know, watch a good movie, and, um, and, and just enjoy. Take your mind off it. And that person enjoys and has peace, and that plane will soon crash into one of the mountains. So you can have that type of peace. But imagine another passenger in another airplane. And in this airplane, they are flying through turbulence. They are flying through a bad storm, and there is lightning, and there is thick, dark clouds that they are flying through. However, this passenger knows the pilot. This passenger knows for a fact that this pilot is the, the most experienced, the most expert pilot that there is, and that even though he's going through this turbulence and this storm, he knows for sure that the pilot and the plane is sound and it will land, that no matter what they're going through, he will be safe in the end. That is the kind of peace. That is the kind of deep peace that God, that Jesus Christ offers to, to you and I. And that starts with and comes from having peace with God. So Jesus offers them peace, and then they offer him a, a piece of fish. Again, different word for peace, but this also uh, helps us to think about something that is going on here that is a main purpose of what is being communicated in this paragraph. And this is the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, not just spiritually. Okay, this isn't just a metaphor. He's not just raised in our hearts or in our memories. But he is physically, literally, bodily raised from the dead. And so Jesus is giving many proofs here, demonstrating that this is true. And so, again, we saw this. Jesus says, you know, here are my hands and my feet. Uh, Touch me. See this. And and even having this piece of uh, fish that he eats. So Jesus could be touched. If he was a mere spirit, if he was a phantom, you couldn't be touched. He wouldn't be tangible. Jesus has flesh and bones. Sometimes we don't think about that, that the, the risen Jesus actually has skin. The risen Jesus actually has, has bones uh, in his arms and his legs and everywhere it, it would be. Uh, that he is raised with a physical, real body. Yeah, the resurrection body has some differences, uh, but there's so much that it is, uh, has continuity with what we have now. Jesus still had the nail prints in his hands and his feet. He told them to look at that, and they could see where the, his hands and his feet had been nailed to the cross. And then we see that Jesus could still eat. And see, what this is demonstrating, ghosts can't eat. I mean, if a ghost or a phantom tried to eat, you know, it would just drop straight through. But Jesus could eat because he had a legit physical body. He was raised with this type of body. And so this is just a reminder to us of the biblical worldview 
that when God created this world, he declared it to be good. Things went askew because of sin, but God is going to restore that. He's putting things back to the way that they ought to be. And Jesus is the beginning of that with, with his resurrection. And we are meant to have physical bodies, to be, have an immaterial part and a physical part that is, that is put together. That's how we're created. That's how we're meant to be. And that is what will happen for all of us at the end with the, uh, when we are raised as well. And we see this with Jesus. So that's a, a main point what this paragraph is trying to communicate to us. Chris and Jessica Sayer, they have a daughter named Hannah. She's four years old. And uh, just a little while ago, Jessica sent me this text, and I, I love this. She texted me and said, Hannah just asked me, this is a quote, Hannah just asked me if the God who has a belly button, talking about Jesus, is the same one who holds the whole world in his hands. I love that question. That's great. Jessica said that should have been part of the Trinity series. Well, we can talk about this now. And uh, Hannah, great question. And the answer is yes. Yes, God, Jesus is God. And Jesus has a belly button. Uh, he, Jesus still has a, a belly button. And he is also the one that made this world. Colossians 1.16 says, talking about Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything's created through Jesus and for him and for his glory. Before we move on to, I think one thing I want to point out here is we think about what Jesus' resurrection body is like, and it gives us some hints to what our resurrection body is like. And we see here, we see Jesus eating, I think that's interesting because, you know, eating is one of, let's face it, just kind of one of the, uh, the, the joys and delights of, of being alive. And I think this points to the fact that you wonder, will there be eating in, in eternity uh, once we have our resurrected bodies and we live on the new earth and the new Jerusalem? I think this is pointing to that, yes, resurrection bodies can eat. And not only can they eat, they can eat meat. He's eating, eating, eating fish here. Now, I know there's questions, there are things we don't know. You know, will we be able to eat uh, delicious, you know, meat in eternity? And how would that work? And, okay, eating meat requires death, and so maybe there are some problems. Uh, who, I, I think God's got it worked out one way or another. Um, maybe meat is so good now because it's the closest thing that we have to whatever it is that God has in store for us that is going to uh, power our resurrection bodies and that we're going to be able to eat in eternity. And maybe, you know, Revelation uh, 22 talks about there being trees uh, in New Jerusalem bearing fruits. And, um, hey, I, I just like to think that, that maybe in the New Jerusalem, bacon will grow on trees. And you could spend a time just planted under a good bacon tree. Uh, that's, that's speculation, wishful thinking. Uh, but... There's a lot of amazing things that we get to look forward to and find out what is this going to be like. So in this paragraph, we saw Jesus was calling these disciples to be a witness uh, that, of him, that he was genuinely raised physically with a real body, and he proved that to them. In the second paragraph, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples 
are called to be a witness to the world of his crucifixion and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. So they're not only called to, to witness, but they're called to be a witness. So let's start reading in verse 44. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They had witnessed the risen Jesus, and here they're being called to, to be a witness for Jesus. And we see in here some of the themes that we've seen in the past few weeks. Jesus, again, he takes them to the scriptures, uh, to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They refer to it then as the three parts that made up the Old Testament, uh, the law, the prophets, and, and the Psalms, or the writings. And that through all of the, throughout the Old Testament, it predicted this. It was about Jesus. It pointed ahead to what had to happen, that he had to uh, suffer, that he was going to rise, and that this was a message that was going to be proclaimed to the, to the nations, that it wasn't merely meant to be contained to the Jewish people, but these Old Testament uh, promises that this was going to spread to the nations as well. We saw that th these things had to happen. They, it, they must happen. So we see here there is both a historic reality, things that, that Jesus had to do, but then there's also our response, the response of disciples. Yeah, they're the original disciples, but things here that also apply to us as well as, as we carry on their work, we carry on that mission. If we look at this paragraph again, we notice kind of three, uh, three verbs here, three, three words that, that had to happen, that they, Christ should suffer, and that he uh, also needed to, to rise on the third day. So we saw those things, and we've talked about those in the previous weeks. As we went through Luke, we saw the crucifixion. Jesus willingly, voluntarily going to the cross as sent by the Father for the purpose of dying, not for his sins, but for our sins. For the sins of anyone at all that will trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he came to do that, to be our substitute, to die in our place. And we saw it. Uh, starting with Easter Sunday, that Jesus rose from the dead, that death did not keep him, but he was victorious over sin and death, and he, he is raised. We also see here our responsibility in the word proclaim, that in verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. It says, beginning from Jerusalem. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about um, this proclamation that disciples are called to do. 
And I believe this started with the original disciples here. But we are to, to carry on their work, to keep uh, proclaiming this, to keep being a witness and pointing people back to, through scriptures, to the, the eyewitnesses, the ones that originally saw this. And I want to talk about four observations about this proclamation. I want to talk about the authority, the goal, the scope, and the means. Because these are addressed uh, in these verses. First, the, what is our authority for this proclamation? We see in verse 47, it says that this should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name. And we see here, this is not, when we proclaim Jesus to people, when we tell them about that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, and we tell about the, the truths of his life, what he did, living a perfect life, uh, his teachings, that he died on the cross as a substitute, that he rose again. Um, and we tell people about how salvation works. We are not just giving our opinion. I mean, opinions are a, a dime a dozen, and if it was just your opinion, if it was just my opinion, then who cares? The authority for this proclamation is, does not come from us. We are like ambassadors being sent by a king with the king's message. That it, it's not our message, it's not whatever we want to declare. Uh, we are being sent in his name. So this isn't just our opinion, this isn't just our wishful thinking. And I think this is helpful for us to realize because there'll be some that will say, well, you shouldn't proclaim Jesus you shouldn't tell your neighbor or your relative uh, that they can find forgiveness in Jesus and that they need to because, well, that's just arrogant. And who are you to say that your way of salvation is, is the right one? Remember, this is what Jesus called us to do, that we are not making something up that is sourced in ourselves. that it is Jesus who said that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the one that all of this authority comes from. This should free us to be confident, even as we go into a world that sometimes doesn't want to hear this opinion. This is God's truth that we are proclaiming. It also reminds us that it is also on the basis of what he did, not us. It's, it's through him, it's for his glory People, forgiveness of sins does not come from anything that us as human beings can do. It had to be from what the God-man, Jesus Christ, what only he could do. We just call people to respond, to receive this gift that he paid for in full. So the authority comes from Jesus. It should be proclaimed in his name. Verse 47 also gives us the goal of this proclamation. It says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So the goal of this proclamation is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He uses the word here, repentance. And we have to think about what does this mean? And sometimes, even Christians, we don't talk about repentance. Or we leave people kind of confused. And there's at least two mistakes that sometimes uh, that, that can be made about this. One mistake is to think that repentance, this is optional. That you can uh, somehow get saved, somehow trust Jesus, ask him to be your savior, but you don't really have to repent. 
Sometimes people think, well, that would make that into some kind of a work, and so you don't have to you do that. But it makes it seem like you could just you can just carry on in your sin and in your rebellion, and uh, you know do your own thing as long as you've kind of added Jesus somewhere in your life. Uh, the rest of that doesn't really matter. That is one mistake, because it's not just here but other places that it does call us to repent. We need to repent. The other mistake is kind of the flip side, the other side of this. And that is to think of repentance in the sense of penance. Of that you have to do penance for your salvation. Basically the idea that if you want to be saved, you have to beat yourself up. You have to punish yourself so that you can be saved. And this is also a mistake. And so if this is what you think repentance means, you have to realize that this isn't. There's no amount of beating yourself up that you can do that is required for you to be saved or that's going to help you to be saved. Jesus already paid the price. Jesus already took the the punishment, the the beating that, that you and I deserve. Receiving the gift of salvation is not about punishing yourself physically or, or mentally. That's not what repentance means. Instead, Scripture talks about salvation coming through faith and repentance. And really, these are not two different things. Really, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And sometimes Scripture will talk about faith. Sometimes it will talk about repentance. Sometimes it will talk about both of them. But it's really the same thing. I have a coin here. This is, my, uh, this is a quarter. This is my Aldi's quarter out of my car. So I think many of you uh, shop at Aldi's, know what an Aldi's quarter is for, and you probably have one. So uh, my quarter here has a, has a heads and it has a, has a tail. And you, you can't split this. You're not going to split it down the middle. You can't just take the heads and the tail. It, it comes together. And if you were to find this laying on the ground, um, if you saw the head side, you would know the tail side is still there, even if you don't see it. If it was flipped the other way and you just saw the, the tails, you would know the head is still there. So when the Bible talks sometimes about faith, it's also talking about repentance. When the Bible, if it talks about repentance, it's also talking about faith. Saving faith is a faith that repents. Because really repentance is, is a turning. And when you're turning away from one thing, you're turning to something else. If I turn this coin away from uh, from my right side, I'm also turning it to my left side. And so when we are called to repent, uh, we are called to have this turning. And yeah, the word repentance does mean literally a change of mind, but it is a change of mind that, that goes deeper, that results in, in other changes as well. And think of the things that we do need to, to have this change about. Uh, we have to have a change of mind and attitude about who Jesus is calling people to repent, they, they rejected him. They wanted Jesus crucified. And us, today, we still, we live in our rebellion. We think that we are the gods of our life, that we can call our own shots, or we're just indifferent to Jesus. We need to repent of that rebellion and turn away from that. We need to have a change of mind about sin and rebellion. We think that sin and rebellion are, are good and okay and, and beautiful. We need to realize that that's not okay. To, to have a change in heart and mind that rebellion against the Lord is not okay. In fact, it deserves condemnation. It deserves punishment. That rebellion against the Lord is what Jesus died on the, on the cross because of. 
that sin is, is serious, that sin is, is ugly. We have a change of mind about ourselves. Instead of thinking that we are righteous, that we deserve God's praise, that we just naturally deserve God to look upon us and to think that we're, we're, we're wonderful and perfect, we realize instead with humility that we are, we are sinners, we are rebels, we are, we are wretched because of our sin and our rebellion. And so repentance is, is turning away from that, turning away from that, repent, from that rebellion and turning to Jesus Christ, seeing him as Savior and Lord and as, as Messiah, seeing him as, as good and true and beautiful and, and coming to him for our salvation, trusting in him instead. Our repentance in this life is never going to be perfect. We always need to keep turning away from sin, but we need to repent. An obvious application for this for you, if you're listening to this, you're watching this, have you repented and have you turned to Jesus? Have you repented of your rebellion against him and had this, this change of heart and mind where instead you turn to him to embrace him as the one that saves you from, from the ugliness of your sin and your rebellion? I pray and I hope that you will do that. This also affects our mission, both as a church and as individuals, that as we're called to witness to others, it means that we are called to offer this, this, uh, this repentance, this faith, this, this conversion, turning to Christ so that people can be forgiven of their sins. This is the only way for this to happen. That our mission that we are given is not, this is not entertainment. This is not about uh, being better than you know, whatever Netflix episode they could be watching. This is not about getting people to like you as a person or getting to, to like our church. It is not about feel-good strategies. It is not about putting a Band-Aid on uh, problems that uh, can't be fixed with a Band-Aid. It is about helping people with their deepest problem, finding peace with God by turning to Jesus Christ and accepting him as Savior. It's part of the mission that God has given us to be witnesses for him. We also see here the scope. How wide is this mission? And in verse 47, it says that this is to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. In another passage of Scripture, it talks about it going to the ends of the earth. So the scope of this is worldwide. And this is why we want to support missionaries that take the gospel truth to the hardest places, to places that, that do not know about Jesus Christ, that have opposition to it. And I hope that you're praying for missionaries. I hope that we're, uh, you're financially supporting them. As a church, uh, we financially support missionaries with at least 20% of our church budget. And so I thank you to those that, that give to the church so that we can support these missionaries as well. And to be praying about is God asking you to go and to be used in that way. But even as we're here, even as you're saying, well, I can't even go out of my house, much less, you know, go to on the mission field right now. But no matter where you are, God is calling you to be a light for him and to be a witness to him. Notice it says here, it, it starts in Jerusalem. It starts where they are, and it goes out from there. God is calling you to be a witness to your family, 
for you parents and moms and dads, that you are, you are telling your children about who Jesus Christ is, that you're teaching them the truth about uh, the God that made us, that this uh, Jesus Christ that was promised and came to save us from our sins. You're being a, a missionary, a witness uh, to your children, to each other. As you're stuck at home, we're still able to connect with people in different ways, whether it's picking up the telephone, whether it's using technology and uh, Zoom and, and Facebook and all these things. And I love seeing some of our people using really creative ways uh, to, to share their testimonies online. And maybe that's something that God would have you do this week. Uh, not necessarily just, you know, sharing little, little graphics or whatever. That there can be a place for that, but writing out some things that you believe, making a video, and maybe sometimes it is sharing uh, a, a sermon or uh, inviting people to worship with you online, sharing that to your Facebook feed, sending it to uh, a specific message to someone saying, you know what, I, I want you to know Jesus. Please, if you can, take time to listen to this message. Think of the ways that you can be a witness for Jesus to the people that are in your scope of influence you're hearing even right now, even in this time. So we have this, this scope. And this passage also tells us the means. This means the how. How we're supposed to go about doing this. What has God given us? How has he equipped us for this? And in verse 49 it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we know this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit the third member of the Trinity that's going to be sent, that they're going to receive later on in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, uh, to empower them to be witnesses in Judea and uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That God is not sending them and he is not sending you and I in our own power and our own strength. We are not to depend on our own skill, our own ability, our own power, yeah, we, we should do what we can. We should be responsible to do that. But ultimately, it is God working in and through us. And praise God that he can do that. And praise God that he will use even fallible people like us. That God can, as, as many have said, that he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That he can take our, our weakness and he can work through this into people's lives. So remember, as you're being called to be a witness, it is not with your own power. If you are a believer, if you are a, a genuine Christian, the New Testament tells us that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And the Holy Spirit within you is going to help you. He will help you to be bold, with a boldness uh, that does not come from you. That, yeah, it is intimidating to talk to others. It's intimidating to think, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? God will give you that boldness. Another application for this is that you need to be in prayer. As you're trying to be a witness uh, to whether it's your kids, or your relatives, or your neighbors, or uh, Facebook friends that you haven't seen in 20 years, pray for them. We are called, yes, to open our mouths, to do what we can, to, to proclaim this message. But the other, the activating factors, the Holy Spirit taking that truth and making it come alive, 
making that, that spark burst into, uh, into life. Pray for the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. We plant, we water, but it's God that causes the growth. And the beautiful thing is that the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to change even the most hardened heart. And maybe that's you. Maybe you realize that you have a heart that at one time was so hard against God, that was so hardened that, that you didn't care at all. You were enjoying your life. You were doing your own thing. And somehow God got through to you and changed your heart. Pray for God to do that in the lives of other people. Yes, do your part, but pray for God to be at work and for God to cause the growth. You know, even before this time of coronavirus and stay-at-homes, you know, people often have a sense of meaninglessness, meaninglessness in life. You know, why do we exist? What's the point of all this? And now, for some people, it can be even worse because of uh, the coronavirus and stay-at-home orders. And some people, and maybe you, maybe you feel like your whole life consists out of, uh, well, you wake up, you get out of bed eventually, make it to the living room, exist, and you repeat. And just day after day, what's the point of this? You know, a sense of meaninglessness can come from many sources. You know, it can be meaningless if you feel like there's nothing permanent, nothing lasts. Nothing you do is going to have any permanent or lasting value. People have a sense of meaninglessness when they don't have a a purpose, they don't have a, a mission in life. But the passage that we have just looked at, both of these paragraphs answer and address two of those aspects we see that there is something that lasts. We don't just live our little brief life and then go out of existence. That every person is going to live for eternity somewhere. That there is life beyond this life. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that. That there is permanence. And this passage also shows us that that we have a mission in life. That you have a purpose a Christian, you are a disciple and you have a calling to be a witness for Jesus Christ as well. And you put those two things together. Do you want meaning in this life? This passage talks about resurrection and mission. People are going to exist for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And God has given you a, a choice and a mission. So turn to Jesus Christ. Trust him as your Savior and Lord if you have not done so already. And then, Christian, live your life for the cause that he has given you to make a difference in the lives of people who will last forever and ever, bringing glory to God our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, We thank you so much for what you have revealed to us, for what we have witnessed in your word, Lord. Lord, we thank you for working in our hearts and lives. And I thank you for everyone that that you have changed their heart. You have caused the, the gospel seed to grow in their life and for them to trust you as Lord and Savior, having turned from their sin and turned to embrace you. Lord, we thank you that you give us meaning and purpose because 
things do last. You are the eternal God. And there is resurrection. There is life to come, Lord God. And every single person will last forever and ever somewhere, either bringing you glory in heaven with peace with you or else being apart from you because they have stayed turned towards their rebellion. Thank you for also giving us this moment. And there's so many important things we do, but nothing compares with being used by you to help people to turn and to trust you and to know you as Lord and Savior. Be with us and help us with that for the good of people and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.